This is Faith Is, and I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. This is the program that helps us build our faith and develop absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. That's what faith is. Faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And I want to help you, and I hope you will help your friends so that we can all develop confidence in God and, and stand upon that confidence and know we can trust Him. I am always so encouraged when people come along and they say, yes, yes, absolutely, we can trust God. We can have absolute confidence in Him, and we will trust Him. So that's what we're here for. I'm really glad you would take some time to join us, and I hope you will build on some of the things we talk about, and your faith will strengthen and deepen, because we want to be the kind of people God always imagined we could become. And that's what we're doing when we help each other. Now, I'd like to circle back a little bit before we get into some of the things for today and mention a couple of things. I got to thinking maybe I didn't mention them well enough or thoroughly enough or something, but one of the things that, that I have noticed, and, and it's maybe partly because of my own experience, is that people have a difficult time understanding the scope of the story of God. The Bible is an anthology, and so we read this book, and then that book, and then the other book, and we sometimes have trouble putting the pieces together in a chronological narrative so that we understand that God started telling us His story. God started unfolding human history in the garden with creation, and, and yet we understand He gets to the end of time in Revelation, but, but what goes on between there, and what what really happens and in what sequence and what's the meaning of that. And so one of the things I've encouraged people to do is to try to grasp a little bit of the scope of that. And I've suggested some tools. And, and last week I mentioned the story. And some of you may have looked into that. That's the narrative version of the New International Version of the Bible, where some thoughtful people have put it together. And it reads like a novel telling the story of God from in the beginning, God created all the way to the end of time in Revelation. So I, I encourage people to read that. I've also mentioned from time to time, and I need to mention some more, that there are audio versions of the Bible, and those are legitimate and useful. Every now and then somebody comes along and says they just, reading isn't for them. They just don't either read well or enjoy it or whatever. Well, we shouldn't let reading or reading skill or enjoyment keep us from the Bible. There are many audio resources, recorded resources that can help you understand the story of the Bible. So I want to make sure that I, I mentioned that again to make sure you look into those. And, and it shouldn't be hard. I've looked for them, and I've found them here and there and just about everywhere. But that's just a legitimate way, maybe on your commute to work, when you're on your way to work, on your way home, you could listen to the Bible story and begin to capture that. There are even audio versions of children's Bible story books. And there was one, I can't remember the name right now, but and I and I know you can find what'll suit you. You don't have to use the one that suits me. But but it was available in an audio version. And I played it in the car for my granddaughter and we listened to the story. And and yeah, it was really cool. And I really enjoyed that. I had heard the story, of course, but I just liked the way the, the author put it into simple language and helped us understand the scope of God's work in creating the world, in creating people. And then the fall, the Satan serpent in the garden, and how then God moved heaven and earth, quite literally, 
to rescue people when he sent his son to die on the cross, to be buried, to come back to life on Easter Sunday, what we call Easter Sunday, and to live forever and make it possible for us now to find our way to that new life. So lots of ways to learn the story of the Bible. Two that I sort of mentioned last week, I wasn't sure I mentioned them enough, are, are the picture Bible. It's a what I sometimes refer to as a comic book Bible. It's because it looks like a comic book when you open the pages and you look inside. It's, it's a really good telling of the story from beginning to end. It's probably when you look at it, you say, well, it looks more like it's for kids. And yes, the reading age is, is elementary level, uh, preschool to sixth grade, maybe, maybe up to 10 year olds. But that's beside the point. The point isn't whether it's hard or easy to read or what audience it's, it's aimed for. The point is, it's a way you can get the scope of the story of the Bible, and it's, and it's fun and beneficial. So that's one approach to that, and it has a certain approach to the artwork, and you may like that artwork, you may not. But there's another one that's much more recent, and, and you might prefer this type of art to the, the picture Bible. This one's called the Epic Bible, and it was put together and illustrated by some of DC and Marvel Comics' best artists. So it has that kind of feel to it, so that if you're familiar with those type of pictures and images, that's what you'll find in the Epic Bible. Now, some of us aren't probably interested in that kind of thing. Well, that's fine. You don't have to go rush out and get it. But if you find that intriguing, and if you don't know the story of the Bible, this is a great way to do it. And, and the good news is this is for grown-ups. Yes, certain age children, then they say about grade seven, about 12 years old can get this. I've seen some kids that are younger than that, that, that enjoyed this. But pick up an, a copy of the Epic Bible and go through that. You can read a few stories at, every day and you'll begin to get the idea. And it's in a creative, contemporary format that really will help you understand and get acquainted with the story of the Bible. I think that's so helpful. And I just want to encourage you to take advantage of the tools that are out there to help you learn what God has to say to us and to learn the stories from the Bible. Because the Bible stories really matter and they really are helpful and, and in so many ways. So that being said, and, and try, kind of picking up from last week when we, we did some of that, I want to now transition to a Bible story. You know, one of the reasons I like Bible stories is because they come to mind when we need them. And I have been so grateful over my lifetime for the people at my church when I was a kid in southwestern Ohio that taught me the Bible stories, even when I was probably, how should we say, a little reluctant to learn or maybe a little um, disruptive. Uh, surely none of us would have ever been that way. But this, this lady, Clara Goodman, was so patient with us, and she taught us so many Bible stories, and I have never forgotten her diligence to do that. Uh, she may have preferred to do other things besides talk to us, but she was there every week and taught us the stories from the Bible. And I learned many, probably most of the Old Testament stories that I was introduced to because of what she did for us every Sunday at church. So we're going to turn to to one of those stories from the Old Testament, and stories speak to us in ways that the narrative portions don't, in ways that poetry doesn't. 
They give us an imaginative look at the events in the lives of God's people, of how God worked with them, of how they sometimes cooperated with God and other times didn't. And it allows us then to make connections to our time. See, the reason I think stories are so helpful is because they do let us have a, 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 a bigger view of what God is doing that is somewhat imaginative. Now, I know we can go off weird directions from that, and I'm not suggesting that. But when you read a story and you begin to, to draw out the ideas from the story, it speaks to us in a different level, and it allows us to be open to, to different ideas. And so I think the stories are really beneficial because they communicate differently to us. The other reason that, that I think that the stories are helpful is because I can remember them. And, and when I can remember a story, then it can be useful. If I can't remember something, it doesn't help me because I just don't remember. And then the, maybe the third reason that I think about that, and I'm just kind of thinking out loud with you here, so maybe you've got some better reasons even, is that when I find myself in, in a certain place in life, either, uh, either a, something complicated is happening or something unpleasant is happening, I run into a difficulty, uh, usually I find myself turning to the Bible when I have trouble more than when things are going well. I don't know, don't know if that's good or bad, that just kind of is. But when I have a challenge, I began to think, okay, what happened in the Bible? What story from the Bible helps me understand what's going on and can help me navigate my way through this? And so when I think about that, and I have this background of having learned these Bible stories, and it's just amazing how God can bring that to mind and say, remember what happened here and see how that affects you. Do you remember what this person did? You could do the same thing. Or it might be, you remember what this person did? Don't you dare do what they did, because that was a mistake. And it's clearly explained in the story of the Bible. So that's why I think the stories can be helpful. So anyway, I've kind of gone on and on. Let's get to this story. Well, this is a story from Samuel, from the prophet Samuel, and from the book, First Samuel. And, it, and it's a story of, of God and his people, and they're wrestling with kings. As you probably know and, and may be aware, God's people said to God, we want, a, we want a king. We want to be like everybody else, so give us a king. And Samuel was horrified when they said that, and he went to God, and he and God talked about it, and God essentially said to Samuel, Samuel, they're rejecting me, not you. They don't really want a king, and Samuel had explained to them why they didn't want a king. But God said, it's not your problem, Samuel. We're going to work this out, and God agreed to give them a king. And so Samuel, faithful to God, went and anointed Saul, the first king of Israel. It did not go well. That's the short version of the story. And it turned out that it went so badly that God ultimately rejected Saul as king and turned his back, so to speak, on Saul. And, and Saul knew it, Samuel knew it. It's a turning point in the history of Israel. So Samuel and Saul had, had this conversation and, and it hadn't turned out like people had hoped, but it kind of turned out the way Samuel had warned about. And so Saul went home and Samuel went home. They went to their respective cities. They're only about two miles apart, but two miles was farther in those days when you didn't have modern transportation. And it's really kind of sad because the, the description in 1 Samuel says that Samuel never saw 
King Saul again. Now we know from later on that there was one incident where he did see Saul, but essentially what they're communicating in that verse is that Samuel never initiated talking to Saul again. It was over as far as Saul's influence on Israel, and it was time to turn the page and go in a different direction. Now, in spite of that, the scriptures also tell us there at the end of chapter 15 that Samuel mourned for Saul. It really got to Samuel, it seems, that Saul had failed so badly, and Samuel was, was so sad that that had happened, that it says that, that he mourned for Saul. You kind of get a picture of, of, um, of such disappointment, such regret. And that's indeed what is described in the Bible story that, that God felt. It says pretty plainly that God regretted making Saul king. He was sorry he made Saul king. Well, think about that. God had anointed him king, and then he was sorry that he made him king. That's a, that's a huge, stunning statement. Well, so the sadness of that change gives way to the responsibility now for identifying a new king. And so I want to read the story from 1 Samuel 16. I'm going to read it from the New International Version because it's one many people use. And again, as I've said many times, you need to use an English translation that you can understand and that you'll actually read or use, refer to. So this is one that's become kind of a standard translation among many people. So I've decided to use that one today. I'll refer to one other one a little later on, but let's start by, by just considering the story that, that picks up after Saul and Samuel part ways and that Samuel mourns for Saul. And it says that, that the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel, but Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. 
Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. So there's a story of Samuel following God's instructions and going down to Bethlehem and anointing a new king, the second king in Israel. Now, a few things to clarify just so we get a sense of the story. In the first part of the story, God says to Samuel, now get over Saul. Okay, it's enough of that already. It's time to move to the next step. It's time to choose a new king. So take oil and go down to see Jesse in Bethlehem. And it says, I've chosen one of his sons to be king. And we'll get back to this idea because there's a little more to it than that. But let's just review the story to make sure we have the sense of it. So, so Samuel immediately uh, objects because he says to God, look, if I go down there, Saul will kill me. Now, that seems like an odd statement. But when we check into it, we realize that the road from Ramah, Samuel's hometown, to Bethlehem went through Gibeah, Saul's hometown. And so likely Saul would have wondered what Samuel was up to. Perhaps he would have intercepted Samuel. Perhaps he would have found out that he was going to find a new king because God had told him to. And perhaps Saul would have considered that treasonous and maybe killed Samuel. So that's why Samuel said, look, if I go down there, Saul will kill me. But, but God is clever and he knows better. And he says to Samuel, look, Samuel, just take a sacrifice take a heifer, some translations say cow, take a heifer. And when you go through, down through and people ask you where you're going, just tell them you're going down to sacrifice. And when you get there, I'll, I'll make sure you know what to do and, and show you who to anoint king. So Samuel does that and, and they accomplish the purpose. Samuel gets through without a problem and he goes down there and, and he gets to the, the city of Bethlehem and he greets the elders there. And the elders are rather upset to see Samuel. It describes them in what we just read is that they trembled when they saw Samuel. And, and that seems a kind of an interesting response. Here's Samuel, God's prophet. Why would they tremble when they saw Samuel? Well, we don't know for sure. We can, we can think about a couple of things. And this is the way stories help us because we can think about what maybe is going on. And as long as we think about what maybe is going on based upon the text of the story and we don't get in some kind of weird imaginative ditch, then we can help ourselves. So let's think about this. A good example for us to use, the elders trembled when they saw Samuel. Well, maybe they were afraid that if Saul heard that they had welcomed Samuel to town and that they were supporting Samuel, maybe Saul would have considered that treasonous and come after them and destroyed them and or the town. Now, we don't know that. It doesn't say that they, that's what they thought, but that's, that's a reasonable question to ask. And so it helps us understand why the elders might have been afraid. Now, they also might have been afraid of Samuel. Now, what if God's prophet Samuel came to Bethlehem to speak words of judgment from God to them? They would have reason to tremble. Well, I don't know if they had heard about the incident with Saul. It doesn't say that in the text. Maybe they heard that God had, had abandoned Saul and that that Saul knew it, and so maybe they were afraid that there was further judgment coming their way for some reason. 
no indication in the story that we read, you, you heard it, same as I did, that they had any reason to be afraid. But that's some of what we can wonder because prophets in those days, they spoke directly to the people. And when God had something to say, he said it to them. So that might be why they were a little concerned when Samuel showed up. But again, God must have foreseen this as well. It doesn't say that he did, but he must have because Samuel said no, that he came in peace. He came to offer a sacrifice and he would like to invite them to be included in the sacrifice. So everybody was put at ease. The purpose of Samuel's visit was to sacrifice to God. And that was a normal necessary practice. So away we go. The instructions Samuel gave then seem a little unusual to us, but not in their context. And probably we should understand them a little more seriously and apply them a little more carefully today as well. But Samuel said to them that they were to consecrate themselves. In fact, it even says of, of Jesse and his sons that Samuel consecrated them. Now, probably what that means is Samuel oversaw their consecration to make sure they did it and, and were prepared to to stand before God at the time of sacrifice. And, and we don't know that uh, exactly what went on with this idea of consecration. There, as far as we have been able to find, there are uh, no certain um, rituals that people are supposed to follow or prescribed steps of consecration. We do know that the idea of, of consecrating themselves, or sometimes we use the word sanctifying themselves, was intended to overcome their ritual uncleanness. And in, in some respects, it's a demonstration to themselves and to God that they know they need God's grace. They know they need God's cleansing. And so they go through this ritual, both to achieve a ceremonial cleanness and to get rid of their ritual uncleanness. Now, whatever it involved, and, and it doesn't say here in this text, it most likely involved, and usually from other places in the story of God, it involved them washing up, what we would say bathing, taking a shower, although I don't think they had showers in those days, that, but they would wash their bodies and clean themselves up and clean their clothes, wash their clothes and prepare to stand before God. Now, I don't know if this is where we get this idea. Some of these things, it's, it's, I guess some people maybe have traced that. I just don't know. But it seems to me that this idea of, of ceremonial cleanness, of consecrating themselves or sanctifying themselves, is similar to the way we should think about Sunday. You know, when we think about going to church on Sunday, we should think about how do we want to present ourselves to God? And how do we begin preparing for that? Now, I've said, and some people probably think I've said it too much. I haven't said it for a few weeks. Maybe it's time to say it again. But I've said at our church, we need to think about preparing for Sunday starting on Monday. And we need to get ready, and we need to think about that so that when Sunday comes, we're ready to come and present ourselves to God. I know back in the day, I can remember growing up as a kid, we had Sunday clothes. I think some people today have Sunday clothes, clothes that they wear for special occasions, and they consider that on Sunday, so they present themselves to God in a certain way. And I think it's a good question to ask, how do we want to present ourselves to God? Now, I know there's a lot of conversation about what people want to wear and don't want to wear, and how dressed up we should be and how not dressed up we should be, but here's, here's the way I think we ought to think about this. And, and I've heard people say several different things, but, but I think we should take seriously this idea, how do we want to present ourselves to God? 
It's not what can we get away with, and God's okay if I just wear my, and you fill in the blank, whatever that means. I don't believe that's the way we should think about it, because we are, if we are serious about following Jesus, then we should be serious about answering the question, how do I present myself to God? Not think about, well, what will God settle for, and, and, and not presume that God's okay with whatever we want him to be okay with. And I'm not going to tell you what to wear to church. Don't, <laughs> don't ever think I want to be involved in fashion choices. Uh, no, not at all. And I understand that, that as a culture, things change, and we accept one way over another way. I understand. I live in Southwest Florida. I'm the pastor at Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida, and we are in the throes of summer, and it is hot, and it is humid. It, it gets so humid here, and it happened a couple times in the last week or so. It gets so humid and hot in the afternoon that occasionally you look out, and the rain is just coming out of the sky straight down. No wind. It's just as though the the atmosphere is so saturated with water, it just has to come out, and it just comes straight down. It's really quite fascinating and, and, and interesting and enjoyable to watch. So I get it that, that the climate where we live matters. I get it that, that our economic ability to, to purchase things matters. So I'm not legalistic about this, and I'm not here to tell you uh, I would never do this. I'm not going to stand by the door of our church and say, you can come in and you can't go put this on. No, not, that's not it at all. My challenge is, will you stretch toward God and ask the question, how should I present myself to God? That's what I think is going on here. So, so they get all cleaned up, they wash their clothes, they prepare themselves for the sacrifice, and, and they get ready, and the, and the next day comes for the time of sacrifice. Well, in the meantime, Samuel spotted one of Jesse's sons, Eliab, thought he must be the one, but God quickly points out that, well, he looks like a likely candidate, Samuel, but he's not the one. And he reminds Samuel that, that people like us, we see the visible. We see how somebody appears and presents themselves, how they style their hair, how, what kind of clothes they wear, um, what kind of facial hair do they wear, what, whatever appearance you want to think about. And, and we see their appearance and that makes an impact on us. And we can at least come to some tentative conclusions about this person because it, their personal style says something about who they are, good, bad, or indifferent. And we also tend to think about people in terms of, of stature, and that's, that's what God points out here, that, that we look at appearance, things like how people present themselves, and we look at how tall they are, and that sometimes affects us and, and our evaluations. But God said, that's not the way I see things. God is very clear, he says, the Lord sees the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. And that's really, really significant. The Lord looks at the heart. Now, when we talk about the heart, sometimes we think, well, does that mean we, our heart is uh, right before God? Does that mean he looks to see if there's sin in our heart? And a lot of times we're a little bit, uh, shall I say, less than thorough in the way we think about what the Bible means when it says heart, also what it means, or when it says mind in the New Testament. A lot of times when it says mind, we need to think much more comprehensively about what it's referring to. It's not just referring to the thinking part of us. In the same way here, when it says the Lord sees the heart, it's not just referring to the emotional part of us. What God is referring to is really the, the whole person 
he's referring to the, the thoughts that they have. What, how does this person think? What do they think about? He's, think, he's noticing their choices. When, when, when they faced with this choice or that choice, which one do they make? He is noticing their emotions. Can they handle their emotions? Can they not? Are they captive to their emotions or are they not? Those kinds of things. Do they have a sense of right and a sense of wrong? And what is that sense of right? Are they willing to say that what God says is right is right and what God says is wrong is wrong? Or do they fudge on that and kind of wonder? So those are the things that God was looking at when he says to Samuel that you look at the visible appearance. You look at what is a likely... Uh, condition because of what you see on the outside. But he said, I look at the heart. So I know the person, the real person inside and out. And I guess just before we pause, that's a good time for us to say, what does God see when he looks at us? And we're going to talk about what he does for us when we choose to follow him. But, you know, we need to consider, do we think God's thoughts? Do we choose God's choices? Do we feel the way God would want us to feel about things? Do we have the, the sense of right and wrong that honors God? Uh, when God sees our hearts, what does he see? Uh, it's, it's a compelling question, and, and it's one we should reflect upon, because it's clear that this matters in this story of selecting a king. Now, uh, to be sure, none of us is likely to be chosen to be king. That's not what I'm suggesting. But what I'm suggesting is that God sees our hearts, and we ought to cultivate a heart that we want God to see. So with that little bit to think about and a heavy thought to, to take a break on, we're going to step back in just a moment and take a little bit of a break. And then we're going to come back and take a look at the rest of this story and come to some conclusions about what God is up to with Jesse's sons and with us. It's amazing. We'll be right back. Because of COVID-19, the average American worries about their immune health four times a day. That's 112 times per year. To minimize the worries, leading nutritional supplement company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost, an immune supplement that contains 15 full doses of science-backed nutrients like vitamin C, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea, all in a one-a-day pill-free gel pack. It tastes great, is convenient on the go, and it's more natural too, without chemical binders, fillers, and coatings. Supporting a strong and resilient immune system can be simple. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Immune Super Boost. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, -E -L -L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. While the cancel culture is determined to destroy our history, bringing violence and terror to city streets, America Out Loud will enhance its own message of love and honor for the American traditions and constitutional values that have always been the backbone of what America means. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. America Out Loud Talk Radio liberty and justice for all. Welcome back. You're 
on Faith Is, and I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, where we help each other grow in our faith because we want to have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And I guess as we kind of talked about just before the break, we want God to have confidence in us because we were talking about the story of, of Samuel traveling to Bethlehem, where he was about to anoint David as the next king of Israel. And Samuel struggled a little bit because there were a number of sons of Jesse that that seemed to be the right ones, but God said, no, you see on the outside, you see what's likely as you can see. But God says to Samuel, the Lord sees the heart. And we talked about that meant that the Lord sees our thoughts, our choices, our emotions, our sense of right and wrong. And it's a fair challenge for us to, to say, you know, we need to cultivate a heart that we're glad for God to see. And we need to do that intentionally and not just assume that it's going to happen, but we need to take our thoughts captive. We need to make sure our emotions don't drive us in ways that we, they shouldn't. We need to make sure we do make the right choices because it's based on a, on a biblical sense of that which is right and wrong. We live in a time when people are turning right on its head and, and saying wrong is right and right is wrong. I mean, it's just bizarre and amazing, but we have confidence in God. And so we develop hearts that we're happy for God to see. And God gives us grace to develop those hearts. So, so it came to a kind of a turning point in the story where the, the likely candidates weren't the ones that were chosen. Story continues and, and the seven sons of Jesse are evaluated, but God did not choose any one of them. Uh, I, I'm not sure what Jesse would have thought there. It's kind of an interesting question to ask and to ponder. It gives us no information in the story. Uh, Jesse surely must have wondered what's up when none of his likely candidate sons were chosen, but they weren't. Oh, and by the way, did I tell you, just in case you'd like to have a little trivia from the Bible, did you know that this man, Jesse of Bethlehem, this man whose sons are now being evaluated to see if one of them should be king, he's the only one person in the Bible named Jesse. A uh, little trivia for you. Well, not so trivial is the choice of a king. And so Samuel says to Jesse, okay, none of these are the ones that God has, has seen and, and chosen. So it is, you don't have any more sons? You have any other sons? And Jesse says, well, I do have one more. He's the youngest. He's out tending the sheep. Uh, now, I don't know. I remember being taught the story as though that uh, probably Jesse didn't think his youngest son was a likely candidate. Maybe he was too young to be considered, at least in, from Jesse's point of view. I don't know. Maybe he just didn't appear to be as good a candidate as the older sons. I, I guess we could understand why that might be the case. Uh, it really wasn't unusual that the younger son might not be there because tending sheep was a typical chore for the youngest in the family, uh, including girls. Sometimes girls were tending sheep in those days. But Samuel says to Jesse, send for that son. We've got we've to see if he's the one and we'll wait. Nothing else will happen until he gets here. We've got to find that out. So they send for the youngest son. The youngest son, of course, is David. He arrives, and, and the Bible describes him as having beautiful eyes, being healthy and handsome. And the Lord says to Samuel, anoint him. David is the king, and David becomes God's anointed and becomes the second king in Israel. It's, it's an amazing story. It is so much fun to, to consider. It, it's so amazing to have the inside view from God's perspective. 
it's so remarkable to see that that all of the plans and all the expectations were not what God had in mind, but lo and behold, there was one that he had in mind, and his name was David. So let's take a look at this story from a little different perspective, and let's let's talk about it because there's a lot of lot of reference to this idea of seeing. You know, Samuel was there to to see the sons and to see which one was the one. There's a reference to God seeing in, in a couple of places. So let's think about about how that works and how that might help us understand the story that God is telling us here. So in in chapter 16, in verse one, as the the NIV says that it talks about how that God had chosen someone to be king. And, and that's, a, that's a reasonable understanding of that translation. But I, I like to consult other ways of, of hearing the, the Bible story told. And so one of the, the English translations I like for the Old Testament is called the First Testament. And it's translated for a specific purpose through, through a specific lens, trying to give us a flavor of what the original Hebrew was like. And I, I just kind of enjoy it because it helps me take a familiar story and think about it with, with a fresh perspective. And, and I need that because I want to make sure I don't miss anything. And I also want to keep the sacred story straight. So I was reading this one and I, and I came across this phrase and it really, really got my attention. In, in 1 Samuel 16, in verse 1, God is sending Samuel to go to, to anoint the next king, to go to Bethlehem to see Jesse. And, and find the next king. And God says, I've seen a king for myself among his sons. So, so I got to thinking about that. Other English translations say God chose a king, and to be sure, God did. I don't think we, we disagree with that. But here, this translation says it differently. It says, and these are God's words as recorded in the First Testament, I've seen a king for myself among his sons. So it's, it's kind of gives me, and this is the way stories work, and this is why I like them so much and why I encourage you to learn the Bible stories. So, so I kind of imagine God looking all around Israel and, and pondering who should be king, and, and I realize this humanizes God, and God is way above this kind of description, so I get that. But this is how the story is told. This is how God has revealed himself. So, so I imagine that, that God is looking around Israel, and he spots down there in Bethlehem, one of Jesse's sons, and it says, I've seen a king for myself among his sons. So God sees this king among Jesse's sons, and then he goes back to Samuel and says, okay, Samuel, get over Saul. Let's go. We're going to go anoint the new king. And uh, the story unfolds, and, and he does. So, so God sees a king. And, and then in, in verse 7, as we read the story, it talks about how God sees a person's heart. And we talked about that with some length just a bit ago, and I don't have to go into all of that again, but notice what it says God sees. God sees a king. God sees a person's heart. And God sees that so he'll know if that person can do what he has in mind for him to do. In the case of David and being king, he um, sees our hearts. So maybe he knows how to encourage us because he sees us making great strides in an area of our life. And so he encourages us. He, he might see us kind of veering off track in one direction, saying, no, back over this way a little bit. Uh, whatever God sees into a person's heart. And, and then Samuel comes along, and he's watching all these sons go by, and none of them are the one. 
And, and all of a sudden, God lets Samuel see what God has seen. From the very beginning, God sees a king. God says to Samuel, I see through different eyes than you do. I see a person's heart. And then finally, when Samuel comes in from shepherding the sheep, God lets Samuel see what God himself has seen. It's really quite a, a remarkable way God tells the story here through this idea of God seeing. So, so what does that mean to us? You know, one of the things I've said is that these Bible stories are valuable because of what they mean to us and how they help us. And, and they really are. So, so let's think about what that might mean today for us. Well, we already talked about one part of that, and we need to just remind ourselves again that God sees our hearts. Now, what does he see when he sees our hearts? Now, if you're a, a faithful follower of Jesus, if you've given allegiance to him and made him first in your life, then God sees a heart made new because the Holy Spirit comes, and instead of ritual uncleanness being satisfied, he makes us new and cleans up our hearts and our lives by the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of those who follow Jesus. So when God sees our hearts, that's what he sees. He sees a heart made new. And that's a good thing. And we're glad he sees that. And we want that kind of heart. The other thing God sees is that God sees that not only has he made a heart new, but because of the way he now deals with people and, and works in our lives, he gives us the Holy Spirit when we become followers of Jesus. When we pledge our allegiance to Jesus, when we give ourselves to him, God gives us the Holy Spirit. And the Bible teaches, and we don't need to go through re demonstrating that. The Bible teaches us that the Holy Spirit comes in the life of the believer and makes us alive again. It uses phrase like, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but we come alive by the Spirit of God in our lives. So one of the things God sees is that we are made new by the Holy Spirit. We who were dead are now alive. So there's a real difference about us. And it's described differently in the New Testament after the coming of Jesus and after the gift of the Holy Spirit than it was in the Old Testament. Although there is a parallel, because when Samuel came along and when he anointed David with oil, because God said he's the one, it says, and this is again, I'm reading from the First Testament, it says, God's Spirit thrust itself on David from that day onwards. So it's real interesting that, that here's a man who God sees his heart's okay, and then Samuel anoints him with oil so all the people can realize that here is the one, and God thrusts his spirit on him, as it says there. That's, that's kind of a, a strong way of saying it, don't you think? Uh, the other translations of the Bible don't say it quite that, uh, how should I say, uh, robustly, maybe. They, they say it in different ways. It's, it's, it's not bad. It, it's just different. For example, the NIV says, the Lord came powerfully upon David. Well, same idea, that the Holy Spirit came because God had chosen him, God had seen his heart, and he was the person that God saw could be king. So when God sees today, he sees our hearts, and when we commit ourselves to him, the Holy Spirit comes to us as well. And so we are recipients of the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is different than what went on in the Old Testament, but it's similar to what went on, and we need to learn a lesson from that. So the anointing but with oil of a king and other places where anointing is mentioned was the way that God demonstrated that someone was set apart, and in this case where God demonstrated that David was going to be king, and 
the Holy Spirit came to enable David to do what God had chosen him to do. And so the Holy Spirit came to David in a specific way, a robust way that helped David be the king God wanted him to be. Now, he wasn't perfect, and we know the rest of that story, and some things broke down and all of that. Okay, don't let's not get ahead of ourselves. But right here, right now, God is saying the Holy Spirit is given to David so that he can be king. Now, when we become followers of Jesus, we, by, by an amazing choice of God, we are the recipients of the Holy Spirit. So similar to David, we receive the Holy Spirit. Now, now, sometimes we get this idea of anointing, uh, how should I say, over-imagined. All right, anointing in the Bible is a pretty concrete act. It's usually, uh, maybe not every time you'd have to survey that for yourself, but it's usually an indication that the Holy Spirit is present, and so someone is anointed with oil as a representation that the Holy Spirit is there. We sometimes use this anointing and say, well, this person is anointed, this person is anointed, that person is anointed, but we don't think that we who are, who are, and this is not the right way to say it, but I'm going to say it for description, we who are just regular followers of Jesus, we're not anointed. Well, not so fast, because the anointing in 1 Samuel here, chapter 16, was, was followed by the coming of the Holy Spirit. When we become followers of Jesus, that's accompanied by the giving of the Holy Spirit. And we should not take that lightly. So if you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit has come and made you new and animated your life in a way it hadn't been before. And similarly, God now makes you able to do things for him that you couldn't do before. The Holy Spirit came to David so he could be king. And the New Testament, Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12, talks very specifically about how the Holy Spirit gives us gifts of grace so that we now can do things for God that we might not have expected we could do. Just as the same way the Holy Spirit was given to David, the Holy Spirit is given to believers today, you and I. And we have gifts of grace that enable us to do important things for God. It's remarkable. No, I don't expect to be king. You probably don't expect to be king. If it turns out you are, please come and tell me. I'd love to know about that. But, but what I hear people saying is, oh, no, it, it doesn't matter what I do or don't do. Uh, no, I'm just me. Uh, that, that, that's a, that doesn't matter. God's going to do what God's going to do. Well, I hope to shout God is going to do what God's going to do, okay? I don't think there's any of us wants to doubt that. But when we put on this false humility or some sense of pride in our humility, I think that's what it is. People get proud of their humility and say, oh, not me. Bless God, I'm just. And then they give a reason for why it couldn't be them. I, I, I'm too this or I'm too that or I'm not enough this or I'm not enough that. And this pride in their humility gets in the way. And, and I want to remind us that that's part of what this story is teaching us, that God uses people. God uses real people. He uses people like you. And God has something that he wants you to do that will benefit the church and benefit the people around us because the Holy Spirit is in us and helping us do those things. So let's talk just about a little bit about that, because I want you to take that seriously. Don't run from the Spirit of God. Don't develop pride in your humility. Quit saying that 
I don't matter. You do matter to God. You matter a great deal. And God left the furtherance of his kingdom in our hands. And for us to abdicate our responsibility is a serious betrayal of the kindness and the grace of God. Yikes, is that serious enough? Yeah, it is, isn't it? So let's talk about this now. See, I have found that when we discover, develop, and use these gifts of grace, that it's a delight. So let me just talk about a couple of examples of, of what that might mean. When you look at 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans 12, this is where I got those, these ideas was from Romans 12, two of the key verses along with Ephesians 4 about this idea that God gives us grace. One of the things it says in there that if God has given you the gift to serve, you should serve. And sometimes we think of that as helps. There are many people that they're great at helping. We've got people around our church that are just wonderful at helping. They just pitch in and help, and nobody has to tell them to. They just do it. And, and I'm thinking they need to acknowledge that God has given them a gift because not everybody can do that, but they can. And maybe that's your gift. Maybe God has given you a gift to help out. We have a gentleman around our church that, that we were talking about this not long ago, and we all agreed that there's nobody in our church that encourages people the way he does. He, he just, it just is part of what God is doing in his life. It's not because he tried to do that. It's not because he, he asked us, could he do that? It, we just recognize that's what God is doing in his life. And he has a gift of encouragement. And I want him to talk to as many people as possible on Sunday, because I want those interactions, those greetings to be encouragement to those people. And God has given that gift. And we want to use that what God has done for him for the benefit of, of our congregation. Well, let's talk about another one. And a lot of people get a little nervous about this one. So if you're nervous about this one, it's probably because God wants to talk to you about this one. But let's talk about giving. Romans 12 talks about a gift of giving, that if God has given you a gift of giving, you need to give. Now, to be sure, we're all to, to give. We're, we're all expected to tithe and give offerings as the Lord blesses. I, I'm not going to quibble over that. That's just what the Bible teaches, that we all have a responsibility to give. And by the way, we don't have a responsibility to give just because we use the services of the church. Okay, I go to church, so I need to put something in the offering because I need to pay for what I got that Sunday. You know, that's just that's just such a weak understanding of things. People, people that, that think that way are just trying to tip God and, and say, well, I need to give God a tip the way I tip somebody at the restaurant. And some of those people that, that give like that, they don't even give as much to God as they pay at the restaurant for their meal. So we need to understand that we give to God because that's how we show God that he is first in our lives. Even if we can't make it to church, we need to be giving to God. We need to be tithing our resources because it's not about whether I get something, something from the church. It's never about what do I get from the church. I've heard that all my life in the church. I remember years ago, people say, well, I'm just not being fed. And they use that as an excuse to go to another church. And, and you know what that was? That was just them saying, I don't get what I want. And so I'm just going to do something different. Uh, maybe it's an excuse for another reason. Could have been a lot of things. But but that's not why we support the church. We support the church. We give because that's the kind of people we are, and that's the hearts we have for God. So, so I guess maybe your church should expect a better offering, a better tithe from you going forward, just because that's what we all do. But some people have a special ability from God to give. Maybe they have more money than the rest of us. I'm not always sure how that works. Some people 
who don't have much money just give and give and give. And I sometimes wonder how they do it. But God has given them the gift of giving, and they give first. That's just how God animates them. And God bless them because when the Spirit has given you a gift, we need to put it into practice. Another gift that's mentioned there in Romans 12, and you can read this for yourself, is the, is the gift of leadership. It talks about if God has given you the gift to lead, then you need to lead. You need to step up and give that gift to the church because the church needs people that can, that can stand up and look out into the future a little bit and say, that's the way we should go, and, and we're going to go do that and, and lead the way in doing that which is right and helpful and beneficial to the kingdom of God. Now, there's a lot of other gifts that are mentioned in the Bible, and this mentioning four, I mean, this is hardly an introduction to that. And, and you can read the, the passages I mentioned, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, and begin to get an idea from that. Most people that, that talk about these great gifts of grace do not believe that these are limited to just those mentioned in those three chapters that I mentioned, but they're examples of how God works in people's lives and gives them special abilities to do things for God. And I think we should take that seriously because see, God called David by anointing him publicly and using his prophet Samuel to do that. God calls us to our responsibilities through the gifts he's given us. So if God has given you the gift of encouragement, soon as we're done here, pick up the phone and call somebody and encourage them. Then call somebody else. Uh, I don't know when to stop, but as long as you have an opportunity, encourage people because people today need a lot of encouragement. I don't know if you've noticed that, but they do. If God has given you the gift of helping someone, maybe you see somebody at your church, somebody that you know that needs help, maybe you need to call them up and say, you know, God has spoken to me and I need to help you. What can I do to help you? After they get over the shock, maybe you can work out some way you can help them. Same way, maybe God's talked to you about giving. Maybe you have resources and maybe you need to give them. And maybe even now God is putting it on your heart that you need to give a significant gift to the kingdom of God because that's what God has made you to do. He created you. He made a new creation of you when he gave you the gift of the Holy Spirit to do that. I don't know what, what gift God has given you. Maybe it's to lead. Uh, maybe it's to teach. There are other gifts. But the point is, just in the same way David was anointed to be king and receive the Holy Spirit, we have received the Holy Spirit by God's design and purpose, and he's given us gifts that we are then to use so that we can serve him in his kingdom. And that's an important takeaway from the story of the anointing of David as king, that God has anointed us by giving us the Holy Spirit and those accompanying gifts of grace so that we can now go live out the mission that God has called us to in the same way David did. We can do our part in the kingdom of God. So uh, go do it. Well, thanks again for joining us today. I, I hope you get something out of these things. I do these these programs because we want to help you develop a stronger faith. We want to help you think through things maybe a little differently than you have before. I know people pretty regularly say to me that I think about things differently, and I think that that's because God helps me think that. Sometimes I wonder if I'm an aberration and, and am I helpful, but just so you'll know, our desire and our intent is to be helpful, not to be confusing, but to help us think about things in a way maybe we haven't, because God really does want to use us, 
and, and make us valuable to his kingdom. And so if we can help you, that's, that's our privilege. And, and again, my thanks to the people of Diplomat Wesleyan Church who encourage this. They have some ideas, and, and I'm thinking about how to incorporate those in, in, the, in the program going forward. Thought we might do one of them this week. I uh, guess we didn't get to that, but maybe next week. Because our real hope here is to provide something that will help you develop that confidence in God. We live in a time when it's easy to think that God is silent or, or that God is being overwhelmed, but I want you to know there is nothing, nothing, can I say it again, nothing that diminishes God. And what God says will stand, who God is will stand, and we need to stand with him, and we need to have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. So this week, as you go about your life, as you serve by the grace given by the Holy Spirit, lift up your head, walk confidently forward, be the person God called you to be, and enjoy the blessing of God. Until next week, amen.